Hey everybody, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, please. We're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Why don't you head there now? While you're looking for that, uh, Julie and I, we've spent the last two weeks in Alberta visiting with family. It was such a joyous occasion uh, to be able to spend time with family and friends again. We even got to go to Golden, BC on the way home, enjoy some of the beautiful landscape of this province. We went whitewater rafting, just had a really enjoyable time, but it is good to be back home with you once again. Uh, as we've been walking through this Storyteller series, uh, one of the things that we've been learning is that Jesus is constantly using parables. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark communicates to us that there's never a time in which Jesus didn't use parables to explain the more profound theological truths of the Gospel and the Kingdom of God using regular, mundane, ordinary things that we understand to help captivate our mind's eye. And that's exactly what Jesus' parables did. Many were awe-inspiring, some were perplexing and confusing. All of them captivated people's hearts. But there was one topic in particular that Jesus talked about incessantly. And it was a topic that every time Jesus talked about it, it was prickly. It was something that rubbed people the wrong way. It was something that, that caused them to have some anxiety and some frustration. And it is, of course, the topic of forgiveness. Forgiveness. And the parable that we're going to be looking at this morning is going to do exactly that. Now, I know I asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 18, but let me just share a passage of scripture with you from Luke chapter 17. One of these crazy, radical things that Jesus said about the topic of forgiveness that really was odd to the people who heard it for the first time. And it's when Jesus said this. He said, if your brother sins against you seven times in the same day, and he turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. <laughs> now, notice something. Not only does it say how many times, seven times, but it also says in the same day. Could you imagine living your life this way? Could you imagine having the perspective that says, if I am wronged repeatedly, time after time after time after time after time after time after time, that's seven. I, I'm constantly going to draw my heart towards forgiving my neighbor in the way that they have wronged me. In one sense, you might think to yourself, yeah, that, that sounds really good, it sounds noble, it sounds Christian. But in another sense, you might say, if I lived my life that way, then I'd get walked all over all the time, and I don't want to live a life like that. Where's the justice? I can't constantly be forgiving where they're constantly taking advantage of the forgiveness that I am giving them, and then my life is destroyed on account of it. I, I can't live like that. And so we look at this, even for those of us who are God-fearing Christians, there might be some resistance toward this kind of living in our life. And, and I can share with you that as we look at our parable today, it's going to do exactly the same thing. Now, if you got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to stay with me. If you don't have it yet, there's still time. Uh, get your smartphone, uh, go to a Bible app, or go grab your Bible. We're going to be walking through this text together, so it's especially important today that you have your Bible in front of you. Matthew chapter 18, starting at verse 21, here's what happens. Peter came to Jesus and asked him, Lord, 
How many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And then he even gives an answer. He says, up to seven times? Now, one of the things we need to recognize about this is, is Peter is drawing to his mind's eye. He's drawing to his attention what each rabbi within a first century context typically instructed the people of God to do. And we find this history all the way back to the Old Testament, the book of Amos chapter 1. There's a story in which God is talking to each of the nations, and many of them have committed vile and corrupt and evil and inhumane things in the sight of God. Many of them uh, engaging in child sacrifices or ransacking cities or doing evil, despicable things. And constantly what we find in Amos is that God God is saying, three times I have forgiven you, the fourth time I will not relent in disaster. Three times I have forgiven you, the fourth time I will not relent in disaster or in giving you my wrath. And so the, the, the rabbis within the rabbinical system, they said, well, if, if that's the heart of God, that we need to forgive our neighbor three times, just like God did, then that's how we should live our life. So three times you forgive your neighbor, but the fourth time, you don't. The fourth time, you don't. But Peter, he knows that Jesus isn't the same as, as many other rabbis. He tends to be much more prodigal in his grace, much more radical in his forgiveness. And so Peter says, how many times should we, as disciples of you, as, as Talmud followers of you, Jesus, how many times should we forgive our neighbor? up to seven times, seven being the Hebrew number of completion. It, it sounds good. It's more than double what other rabbis are saying. And then Jesus says something equally profound. Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Just a side note here, if you have some commentary at the, the bottom of your Bible, you'll see there that it, it'll give actually three options. It'll either say 70 times, 77 times, or 70 times seven times, which technically is 490 times. And the reason for that is the Greek language doesn't have numbers. So this is really difficult for us to, to know what the real number is. But that's not what's significant about this story. It doesn't have to do with whether it's 70 or 77 or 490. That's not the point. The essence of what Jesus is saying is always one more time. Always one more time. It's, it's not like there's a certain men who are in their basement and they've calculated how many times their mother-in-law has uh, done something wrong against them and, and the board says 487 times, three more times, and then I get to, just like God in the book of Amos, release my wrath against my mother-in-law. Nothing like that. God is always saying the heart of a Christian is to forgive one more time. And it is a radical statement. How could we live our life like that? And so Jesus, he always says this. He always says one more time. He shocks the crowd. And then he gives them this story, picking up at verse 23. Therefore, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay... The master ordered that he 
and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. 10,000 bags of gold. Or if you are looking at your ESV version, it might say 10,000 talents. Now a bag of gold or, or a talent, that was the equivalent of 20 years wages. And so 10,000 bags of gold being 20 years wages each is the equivalent of 200,000 years of wages. Like this is an astronomical number. In fact, if we took into account inflation and what we typically make today, uh, this number would be the equivalent of $25 trillion. Even the most rich people on the planet, like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg and all those guys, Jeff Bezos, they wouldn't be able to pay off this debt in a hundred lifetimes combined. Like, that's how big this debt is. In fact, I I think one thing we should be thinking about is when Jesus said that this man owed 10,000 bags of gold, it is likely that everyone who was listening to the story burst out into laughter. Because there's no possible way that anyone could ever have that kind of debt. He says, this man owed 10,000 bags of gold. Ha 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 ha, it's so funny. And then something equally radical happens next. Equally humorous happens next. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. And he said, be patient with me. I will pay back everything. And I'm sure everyone just roared at this because there is no possible way that this man would be able to pay off this debt. Like I said to you, it's the equivalent of 200,000 years of wages. Even the entire empire of Rome didn't come up to 10,000 bags of gold. Like this is an astronomical, astronomical debt. And so you can picture in your mind when they hear this story, it seems like an exaggeration. It seems so far-fetched. And what is equally humorous is when this man says, I'll pay you back. You know, will you, will you take a post-dated check while I run off to a far distant country? Of course he can't pay back that debt. But what happens next is incredible. It's incredible. Verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. And I'm sure all of his financial advisors, if this was a real story, would say, Master, what are you doing? Don't you see that on account of this man's actions and on account of you constantly giving him more and more and more debt to waste, that this is going to have a profound effect on your kingdom? You need to get something in return. And this is one of the principles we're going to be talking about a little bit later, is that when it comes to any type of debt, someone's got to pay. Someone has to pay for this debt. Either the master has to pay for it, or the servant has to pay for it. He can't just say, I forgive you. He can't just let it go, like we learn in the movie Frozen. He he can't do that. Someone has to pay for this debt. And that's the first principle that I highlighted in your note sheet, if you're following along there, I put it this way, someone must pay for the debt. Who is that going to be? And so when it comes down to brass tacks, we have to recognize that either the servant is going to pay for it, or the master is going to pay for it, but you can't just brush it under a rug. And that is the nature of forgiveness, is it not? 
Never can you simply say, let bygones be bygones. Never can you simply say, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it. No, someone has to absorb it. Someone has to endure it. Someone has to pay for it. But in this particular story, the master chooses to absorb the debt to the shock of everyone listening. But interestingly enough, there's a second act to this story. The story isn't done yet, and now we're going to turn away from the master, and we're going to turn turn toward the servant and to see what he does in the second act. Verse 28, But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him, and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Now, one of the things that we have to recognize here, when, when you see 100 silver coins, you might also, if you have an ESV, it'll say 100 denarii. Typically, almost every single person in that first century context were day laborers. They would go out into a vineyard or into a field, and they would work for a day, and typically all the servants would get paid a silver coin. They'd get paid a denarii. So when we see that this man owed 100 silver coins, it's the equivalent of 100 days' wages. Now, there's two things we have to recognize. The first thing we have to recognize is that in comparison to what the servant owed the master, $25 trillion, 200,000 years worth of debt, this is a pretty insignificant debt, right? They, they don't even compare to each other. But by the same token, which of us, if we woke up tomorrow and recognized that a third of our annual household income was gone, would say, oh, that's easy? Of course not. So this is, in and of itself, a rather significant debt. But we would assume, in light of this monumental debt that this servant has just been uh, forgiven from, that he would be gracious to his neighbor. But of course, in the story, he is not gracious to his neighbor. And one of the things that we have to recognize here is whenever there was a great debt that is uh, against a master or someone else, they always had two options. The first option that they had is that they could put that person in debtor's prison, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. And the second option that they had is that they could become indentured slaves. And what would happen here is that they and their family, they would become servants or slaves under that master, and they would work for perhaps years until they paid off that debt, and then they could be a free person once again and enter back into society. Those were always the options whenever someone incurred a monumental debt. But in this story, we find that the servant is incredibly harsh, and he throws him into prison. And then here's what happens next. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, take note of this, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Does that sound familiar? It's exactly verbatim what we read earlier when the servant was talking to the master. But here's the only difference. In the second act, we could see that hypothetically this man could actually pay off this debt. It would take time. And it's a rather significant debt, a hundred days wages, but hypothetically he would eventually be able to pay back this debt. But previously in the first act, we know that there's no possible way that he would be able to pay back the debt. And that's what's so ironic about these two stories. And then we read on. 
Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Verse 32, then the master called the servant in and he said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back everything that he owed. And so this is what we have to understand. We have to get this. This man's situation here is even worse than what we find all the way back in verse 25. Originally, the master was just going to make him an indentured servant. He was just going to make him a slave until he could pay off all the debt, even though it would take him more than a lifetime to do it. He, he would still be able to breathe fresh air while he was paying off this debt. But now, on account of his wickedness, he is thrown into prison to be tortured for the rest of his life, for the rest of eternity. And so that's what we have to recognize here within this story. And, and this is really the essence of the story. The way that it ends is in verse 35. Take note of this. This is the verse to circle and highlight and underline in your Bible. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Wow. What a radical story of forgiveness. And I think when it comes to this story, there's, there's really only three options available to us in how we can interact with this story. The first option is we can just throw the story out altogether and say that this is just a bunch of silliness. I don't want any part of it. The second one, which I think is equally dangerous, is we could simply write it off as Jesus being, Jesus exaggerating to make a point. And to say, surely forgiveness is important, but it's not as though God is going to judge us to the same degree that we judge or don't forgive our neighbor. And I think that would be a mistake. And the third and final option is that we take what Jesus says in this story to heart. And if we do, I think that should cause us to tremble. Because who among us, as we're watching today, needs to take a hard look in the mirror and to recognize that maybe, just maybe, we have not been forgiving our neighbor in the same way that our Heavenly Father has been forgiving us. And if that's the case, maybe, just maybe, we need to take some time to explore what it means to have a forgiving heart toward our neighbor. And by the way, this, this story, it is not proposed to non-Christians because when it comes to non-Christians, the first step that they need to take in their heart is to accept the free, gracious gift of God that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. He lived the life they should have lived. He died the death they should have died. And in his mercy, Jesus has paid for our debt, that $25 trillion debt, that 200,000 years of, of debts. But that's the first step. But this story is reserved exclusively 
for those within Jesus' fold, for the disciples, for God-fearing Christians. He's saying, if we don't forgive our neighbor, then neither will God forgive us. You see, those are intricately linked in in the way that God uh, has a relationship with us and the way that God forgives us. We are also called to forgive our neighbor. They're always intricately linked. They're always attached at the hip. And we have to recognize that on the front end if we're going to understand the essence of this story. And I think if, if we're honest with ourselves, this is really tough. Because who among us doesn't have someone in our hearts that we know that we have not been living up to the standard of God to express mercy and grace and forgiveness? And I also know that for many of us who are watching today, this is exceedingly difficult because there may be a situation in your life where there were people in your life whom you should have been able to trust and they have harmed you in the most gratuitous of ways and you look at the story and you say, Justin, I'm able to be a forgiving person to the vast majority of the people in my life except for him. Except for her. I can't forgive them for what they did to me. And I recognize that this story is going to pinch. This is going to be a tough one. Because we've all been wronged. Some of us a whole lot more than others, but each and every one of us has been wronged. And we recognize just like how the story unfolds, we might need to lose something on account of, of giving them forgiveness, because forgiveness always comes at a cost. But I also have learned over the course of my life and and as a pastor that we also have some some funky ideas on what forgiveness is. So for the remainder of our time today, I want to first talk about what forgiveness isn't, and then I want, once we have a proper perspective, to see what forgiveness truly is. So that's where we're going for the remainder of our time today. So here's what we have to see. Forgiveness is not, first of three things, forgiveness is not forgetting or an endorsement of the sinful behavior. It is not simply forgetting about or endorsing the sinful behavior that has been caused upon you, has been infringed upon you. And I think sometimes that's the idea that we have in our minds. Because we think that there is this expectation from God to completely forget about everything that has happened to you. And we might even have some Bible verses to back this up. Let me just share a couple passages of scripture that have been used to justify this line of thinking. The first one, Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so does he, that being God, remove our transgressions from us. And if that's the heart of God, that should be the heart of us too. God says, as far as the east is from the west, I will remember your sins no more. And maybe that's what I have to do. Or we think of Micah chapter 7. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and it'll be no more. And we think that's how it should be for us too. Or what about Jeremiah 31? I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Now here's the reason why I think we need to be really careful about how we interpret these stories. Because the concept of remembering is vastly different in the Hebrew language 
than it is in a 21st century English context. Because when we think of the opposite of remembering, what do we think? We think forgetting, right? And yet that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Let let me just give you one example of this. Uh, This is the story in Genesis chapter 8 of Moses, or sorry, of Noah when he's on the ark with his family and all the animals. And then God says this, but God remembered Noah and the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. This is after 40 days. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. When we see this word remembered in our English 21st century context, we almost get this idea in our head that God, after 40 days, says, oh no, I forgot to turn the water off. Right? That's kind of the idea. Oh, I forgot, but then I remembered and then I allowed the water to subside. Or again, when we're thinking of what is highlighted in Jeremiah, I will remember their sins no more. It's not that God is choosing to forget. What is highlighted here in this story is that Jesus is choosing to overlook the iniquity of the world. He's choosing to overlook the sin of the world. He remembers it. He has it in his mind's eye, but he is choosing to turn it into a memorial of grace. And that's the great beauty of the gospel. If if we have the hope of the gospel in our hearts and we're anticipating a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, it's not as though we won't have in mind everything that has happened on this earth. I don't think so. I think we will have an acute awareness of what has happened on this earth, but all will be redeemed on account of what Jesus has done. And that will pierce our hearts. It will melt our hearts. It will humble us. And with tears in our eyes, we will sing praises to God on account of his grace and his forgiveness. That is what he means by this. Not that he simply forgets it. Not that he simply endorses the sinful behavior. But that he turns it into a memorial of grace. Number two, forgiveness is not removing all the consequences. It's not removing all the consequences. Think again to the story of this master. He knows that when this man has incurred a 10,000 bags of gold kind of debt, there's always two options. Either the master must pay or the servant must pay, but someone's got to pay. The consequences have to be paid. You think, for instance, so let's just say, parents, uh, your oldest son asked to, to drive your Cadillac, brand new Cadillac that you just bought, it's a beauty, and you, he begs and begs and begs, and finally you say, all right, fine, you can drive the car, and then he gets drunk with some of his buddies, and he drives that car straight into a light pole. Now, he's okay, but there are fees up the wazoo. Police show up on the scene, you discover that your car is totaled, that there's city fees on account of banging into the pole, and then he has a DUI on his record, plenty of different costs to go around, you got to bail him out of prison, all those kinds of things. Now, a parent in this situation has two options, do they not? The first option is you can tell your son, you got to pay your own debts, buddy. You made your bed, you got to sleep in it you got to pay for that. Or even if the father chooses to, to say to his son, I forgive you and I'll pay the debt, he has to endure that debt himself. He has to buy another Cadillac. He has to pay off the debts. He has to pay the societal fees. But someone, someone has to pay for the debt. 
And so when it comes to forgiveness, it is not a removal of the consequences. Third and finally, it also is not, and I put necessarily in quotations because I think sometimes it is, but it's not necessarily a full restoration of trust. You might think back to the story that we're looking at today. And imagine if after the servant has been forgiven this 10,000 bags of gold debt, if he turned around and said to the master, hey, could I have a little bit more? No, I I think trust has been broken. I think he recognizes that you have not been a good steward of everything that I have been given, that I have given to you. It is not necessarily a full restoration of trust. Getting a a little more practical and perhaps a little bit closer to home, uh, perhaps you or a couple that you know, uh, either your parents or friends, are are really struggling in their marriage. It could be on account of constant fighting, or it could be marital unfaithfulness. You know that there's two things that are highlighted on, on how we can move forward in a marriage that has lost trust. The first thing that is highlighted by God is that if they have a repentant heart, we need to forgive them. But the second thing that we have to recognize is that trust is only something that is built over time. Even though forgiveness is something that is given on the front end in order to reconcile the relationship, trust needs to be built over time. They're not necessarily the same thing. They're not intricately linked. One happens immediately and the other one happens progressively. It's like the doctrine of justification and sanctification. The doctrine of justification is given to us instantly. That's the forgiveness. But sanctification is something that happens over time, and that's how trust is built. And so we can't marry those two things. We can't merge them together. And so now that we have a a greater understanding of what forgiveness isn't, I want us to take some time talking about what forgiveness is. And this is what's highlighted in verse 35. This is the foundation of the parable of Jesus in this story. I put it this way. Forgiveness is refusing to seek revenge and giving to others what God has already given to me. At its core, that's what forgiveness is. Giving to others what God has already given to me. Forgiveness is not an endorsement of sinful behavior. Forgiveness is not exemption from consequences. Someone's got to pay the debt. And forgiveness is not necessarily, not necessarily full restoration of trust. It is simply entrusting the issues of justice into God's hands and seeking to reconcile the relationship. So let's break this down a little bit more looking at the first one, refusing to seek revenge. Uh, Perhaps uh, for those of you who were following the news a couple years ago, there was a story that made headline news for months upon months upon months, and it was the story about Larry Nassar, who was the gymnastics, U.S. gymnastics coach for decades. And the story came out that he had been abusing women on the gymnastics team for years for years upon years upon years. And when all this came to light, the entire nation of the United States, but also many in Canada, were 
or watching the story. It's become so popular that there's a docu-series on Netflix about this exact story. And one of the things that was so incredible about the story is one of the women who was harmed, her name was Rachel. She was in a courtroom and she chose to forgive Larry Nassar. And if you remember the story, you know that her choosing to forgive this man was met in a variety of ways. Some commended her and say, wow, I, I can't believe that you have a, a, a heart of forgiveness even after everything that he's done to you. But others felt betrayed. They were so incredibly angry with her and say, what about all the other women that he had abused? Are you, are you forgiving on behalf of them too? That's not your place. How could you do that to this despicable human being? How, how could you possibly say, I forgive you to this scum? And after the story came out, Christianity Today reached out to Rachel and said, what does it mean to you to forgive Larry Nassar? And this is what she said. I want to read this quote to you. It means that I trust in God's justice and I, real, and, and I release bitterness and anger and a desire for personal vengeance. It does not mean that I minimize or mitigate or excuse anything that he has done. It simply means that I release personal vengeance against him and I give it to God. And I feel like that is an incredibly powerful description of what forgiveness is. Entrusting to God's justice what has happened to you. Refusing to seek revenge. And recognizing that in the manner that I forgive my neighbor, God forgives me. The second piece that we see is giving to others what God has already given to me. And, and that's the parable, right? We, we compare and contrast these two debts. The first is 10,000 bags of gold, 200,000 years of wages. And then the other one is 100 days of wages. And in one sense, they're totally different from each other. And yet we begin to see the heart of this servant. Even after he has been forgiven this monumental debt, he doesn't have the perspective to be able to turn toward his neighbor and to bestow the same forgiveness to him. And on account of that, the master says, you wicked servant, you wicked servant. And so Jesus, he forces us to see that our own forgiveness is always placed within the context of how God forgives us. And that is the radical element of this story. Do we have the perspective to see that we are called to forgive our neighbor in the way that God has forgiven us? See, many of us are familiar with the Lord's Prayer and how Jesus teaches us to pray. This, this is in Luke chapter 11. You know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, many of us know that off by heart, but not many of us know what happens immediately after Jesus' instruction on how to pray. This is Luke chapter 11, verse 4. It says this, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against 
us. And, and so here's the hard truth. I hope you have the, the heart to be able to hear this. I want to encourage you to take a breath because this might sting a little bit, but it is my hope and my prayer that you could hear what the gospel is saying to you today, what Jesus is saying to you today. If you refuse to forgive someone who has wronged you, who has hurt you terribly, then you need to know this. Your standard of forgiveness and mercy is higher than God's standard of mercy and forgiveness. And I don't know if that's a place where you want to be. If you decide, I'm I'm not going to forgive my neighbor... No, there's no possible way, Justin, that I can forgive them in light of what they've done to me. There's no possible way. Then I humbly have to tell you, as painful as it might be to hear this, your standard of mercy is higher than God's standard. And before we close, I want to highlight to you that there's implications both in this life and the life to come when it comes on how we forgive. So let me start with this life here on earth. Our motivation to forgive on this life is this. Unforgiveness will destroy your life. Unforgiveness will destroy your life. I think of what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12. He says this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. I've heard it been said this way, bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Did you hear that? Bitterness and unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die because that's what bitterness does. It destroys your life. It destroys your heart. And if you have a heart of bitterness, if you have a heart of resentment, if you are carrying that around day after day after day, it will destroy your life. It will destroy your life. What I've come to know is this. Hurt people tend to hurt people. I've seen this trend in my own life. I've seen it in the ministry that I've been a part of over the last eight years. I've had personal experience with this. Hurt people tend to hurt people. If you don't have the ability to forgive, then bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness will destroy your life. But there's also a motivation for our eternal life as well. And I put it this way. Forgive life like your life depends on it because it does. Because your life does depend on it. So let me just, let me just ask you a question right now. Who in your life in no way, shape, or form is deserving of your forgiveness? Do you have that person in your mind's eye? Can you see them? I shared with you already Jesus' pattern on how we ought to pray our Father in heaven. This is the other passage in Matthew chapter 6, where immediately after teaching us how to pray, he says it this way here. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But 
If you do not forgive others their trespasses, and, and, and I put in, like the wicked servant does in this parable, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. And so we have to see that these two things are intricately linked. And I need you to see that the only possible way that we will be able to forgive our neighbor is if we have the perspective to see that our debt over and against God is by far and away much more significant and substantial than what has been happened to us, than what has occurred to us, as gratuitous as it might be. You see, most of us, we don't have the eyes to see just how despicable our sin is in the sight of God. We don't have the proper frame of reference. We don't have the proper perspective to see just how evil our sin is, just how evil our hearts are. And so the first thing that we have to see in our life is if we want to come to terms with what is being highlighted here, we need to have the perspective to see that our hearts need to be melted on account of the gospel. That the reason why Jesus came He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died is because we couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't pay for that debt. We needed a redeemer. We needed a substitute. We needed someone to pay the monumental debt that we couldn't pay. And so because Jesus went to Golgotha, the land of the skull, because he stretched out his hands and allowed the nails to pierce his hands and his feet, because he died a sinner's death, we could be set free. And it's only in the moment when our hearts are truly humbled and and melted by the gospel will we be able to look at our neighbor and to give them forgiveness too. And so as we close, what I believe to be the real game changer when it comes to a heart of forgiveness is this. We need to humble ourselves by getting a better mirror. We need a better mirror. We need to see ourselves for who we truly are in the sight of God. I think of the reformer Martin Luther when he says, Oh, the wretch and the worm that I am. Do you see your sin that way? Do you see just how much Jesus had to pay in order to bring you back? God's grace isn't cheap. It came at the price of his son. And it's only when we have that perspective will our hearts truly melt. That heart of stone, the uh, the Apostle Peter says, will be turned into a heart of flesh. And so my prayer for you today is that you would take some time and that you would get right with God, that you would fall down on your knees and you would say, Lord, oh, the wretch that I am, thank you, thank you, thank you for the mercy of Jesus. I ask, Lord, that you would humble my heart, that you would make me a humble person, so that I, in turn, can look toward my my neighbor, even those who have harmed me in the most gratuitous of ways, and just like Rachel, can say, I forgive you, that I would entrust them to your justice, that I I would let it go. That's my prayer for you. 
the words of Jesus are this. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy of your son Jesus. We thank you that he came from heaven to earth and he endured the cross, scorning its shame, so that we could be set free. We ask that that reality would penetrate our hearts today. We wouldn't just know it in our heads, that we would know it in our hearts, that it would change us, and that in so doing, we would have a heart of forgiveness toward our neighbors too, that we would do the good work of reconciliation in this world. Oh Lord, give us that perspective to see what you have done for us, the monumental debt that you have paid. We thank you in advance for giving us what we need. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.